We're in Psalm 22. It's on page 457, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my mouth, to, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among me. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your names to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise and great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming congregation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. You've heard me say on a number of occasions that uh, one of my f- texts that is most intriguing in the New Testament is the story of Jesus as he came up alongside the uh, two individuals on the road to Emmaus. It's an incredible story of how Jesus didn't let them understand that it was him. And as he walked with them, he uh, conversed with them. And one of the things that they said to him in that journey just after the crucifixion had occurred and Jesus had been laid in the tomb, um, 
they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then they said, but we come to his grave and his body's gone. They were distraught. They were beside themselves. They didn't know what to do as Jesus walked with them. And then Jesus turned back to them and he said this, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, and this is the amazing part of it, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, he certainly didn't take and read all of the Old Testament. He took the high points of the Old Testament and showed how they were about what had just happened. Jesus had to suffer and how they connected to all of that. And it certainly was the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't the New Testament. Obviously, that hadn't been written yet. It was the Old Testament. Now, I think probably one of the texts that Jesus talked about was Psalm 22. Most probably it was. We don't know for sure. That's one of the things that intrigues me. I wish I I knew exactly the ones he picked. But then I probably would neglect others and wouldn't look at the whole counsel of Scripture as I lay it out to you. But I think probably this psalm would have been there. This psalm would have been integral to that laying out at all that the prophets had said about him and interpreting it. Because this particular psalm is a psalm of the cross. You, you can't escape it. As you, as you look at this psalm, you cannot escape that it is a picture of the crucifixion, which is, is interesting because um, there was no such thing as crucifixion when this was written. They didn't understand what it was. It wasn't a form of punishment when Psalm 22 was written, but it so clearly portrays the crucifixion and, G- and David seems to be speaking prophetically here. Not, not always are the Psalms prophetic in the sense that, that David is specifically speaking prophetically. Certainly in many cases, and we've talked about this, there are times when, when we see in David's life a circumstance as a type of Christ, a type of the Christ to come, Jesus Christ, and we see that he's in a circumstance and you understand that later that particular psalm gets quoted in the New Testament and it is showing that he was a picture of a greater picture to come of Christ. And so so they would use that same text about the suffering of Christ. But here in this place, there is really no account in David's life to account for what he wrote here. There's no way you can go back to a situation that David encountered and say that's what was going on here in this psalm. So David was writing what was happening in his life and then speaking forward to the greater Christ to come as a, as a picture, really. No, he was speaking prophetically, and there is certainly grounds for him doing that. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, There, David is speaking about another psalm. He's speaking about Psalm 110. Um, And, uh, or he, or he he is, it, it is an account of David speaking in Psalm 110. The writer of Acts, Luke, says this about David in it. He says, being therefore a prophet, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And then he quotes Psalm 110. So there were times when David was just a picture. Just his life was a, 
picture of a greater reality that was coming, of Christ. But in this case, it isn't a picture in David's life. It, it is a prophetic utterance of David about a crucifixion that David had no idea, really, what he was writing about totally. Look at the account of the crucifixion. Look at how it talks about it just for a minute in chapter, uh, in verses 14. If you start there, it says, this is, this is the psalmist speaking. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Are you starting to hear the account of the crucifixion in those texts? Some direct references to it in the text. But it was an account of crucifixion, a prophetic account by David that he is uttering here. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Psalm 69. And as we were in Psalm 69, we, uh, we talked about the fact that probably Jesus had this psalm in his mind, even as he was on the cross. We looked at one verse in Psalm 69 that tends to take us there, that somehow Jesus on the cross, was conscious of the psalmist words in Psalm 69. I think, I think it's also the case in Psalm 22. I think in both of those cases, as Jesus was on that cross, the words of the psalmist, the prophetic words of the psalmist, Jesus knew them and ref- was reflecting upon them and, in fact, I think was making sure that he fulfilled them. And one of the ways he fulfilled it was in Psalm 69. Let me take you back to that, and then we're going to move on to look at specifically Psalm 22 and the ways some of that happened. But in Psalm 69, um, there we read these words. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That is the psalmist speaking in that particular text. Now again, we carried that over to the New Testament. We carried it over to the book of John, chapter 19. And in John chapter 19 and in verse 28, we read these words. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, and then in quotation marks in the text, it says, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A direct reference back to Psalm 69, a direct reference to the text that says they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Why did they give it to him? Because as Jesus reflected on that, thought about that, cried out, I thirst, I thirst, I thirst. Why? To fulfill scripture, it says. The text says specifically in John 19, that Jesus did it to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus did it as he contemplated it to make sure that every word of the prophet was fulfilled. Sometimes we run over those things. I think sometimes we run over the humanness of Jesus on the cross. He was fully man. 
And I think scripture sustained him. I think scripture, like these Psalms, sustained him and strengthened him. He realized all that was happening. I think there was a degree to which, we've talked about this at other times, I don't want to go back to it, and, and yet I think it's true. There's a, there's a sense, I think, that Jesus, who was always fully God, from the very beginning, which there was no beginning, he was always God. He was always God. From everlasting, he was God. But 2,000 or so years ago, he became fully man. And he entered into this world being fully God, fully man. He never laid aside his deity. He never was not God. But 2,000 years ago, became something else, became fully man as well. Took on humanity. Took on humanity so that he could go to that cross. But I think there's a sense in which as he took on humanity, though it is mysterious to us and we can't fully understand it and to get too close to really figuring it all out, we in danger of crossing over into heretical territory. So we dare not do that. But I do think there's a sense in which Jesus, though he never was not God, he never was not divine, somehow restricted the use, restricted the use of his divinity to be fully man. One of the best ways I've illustrated that is I don't think when the scripture says he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, I think that means that Jesus, every time he came up against temptation, didn't reach into his back pocket and pull out the divine card. Because if he had done that, then in some ways he would have resisted sin, not in a way that we're called to resist sin. He would have trumped us in the sense that he'd had an extra ability to do that that we don't have. And the scripture says, those are the tensions, those are the mysteries. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So I say that to say that even as Jesus was on that cross, to realize that he pondered texts. He pondered the prophecies of the Old Testament and and though didn't have a literal checklist in many ways, checked off those prophecies and fulfilled them. He fulfilled them in Psalm 69. I thirst to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill what was spoken about him in that moment, in that time. And then we go on farther in scripture and and we, we see other ways that he fulfilled scripture. In John chapter 19, though we don't want to spend all of our time there, it's in that text, if you look up a little farther up in the text, if you look up into the middle of the, of the experience of the crucifixion itself, before you get to the point at which we said, Jesus said, I thirst, because that was toward the end of his suffering on the cross. In the middle of that, it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what happened. It happened at the cross. The writer John tells us that, that they were, they were dickering for his clothing. Again, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. I hope when you start to see those things, and you start to see that we can do this, with the Bible. We can take an Old Testament text and go to the New Testament and that they connect the two together, that it strengthens your faith. I hope as we've walked through the Psalms and done that, as we just say the fact that there was no crucifixion when this was written. 
Psalm 22 didn't know about it. It begins to strengthen you. It begins to strengthen your resolve in your commitment to the Savior and the commitment to follow Christ because that's what it should do. And, and that's why it's written. It's written to strengthen our faith, to help us. But now let's move on. I want to look at Psalm 22 specifically. I want to look at two places where that particular psalm is fulfilled. There's certainly more in that, but two specific texts that just jump out at us as being fulfilled in Jesus, as being on, if you will, that checklist that Jesus was going through as he pondered that text on the cross. James Boyce says it this way in his commentary, that Jesus seems to have been deliberately reviewing these passages from Psalm 22 in his mind to be sure that he fulfilled them completely. What are they? The first one is right there. The first one is in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a direct quote that comes out of Mark to us or is, is recorded in Mark to us. Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened about noon of that day. Up until that time, Jesus' focus had really been on others. On others. He had, the women who were around him, he, he, he interacted with them and said, he feared for them. He feared for what was coming. He said, don't, don't worry about me, but worry about what is to come. His concern was about the women who interacted, that he came into contact, and he's been making his way to Golgotha. And then, as the soldiers laid him on that cross, and they began to drive those nails into his hands and into his feet, he said, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. He also talked to the thief on the cross. Remember, there were two men beside him. One man was badgering him. One man was scoffing at him. And the other man says, don't you know who you're speaking to? Don't you realize what's going on here? And to that one, the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today... Today you will be with me in paradise. His his thoughts, even as he hung there on the cross, at this point were on others, other people, and others around him. He was aware of that. He entrusted his own mother as he is on the cross to John to take care of. But then everything began to change. Everything began to change. Certainly I think Jesus still had a concern. Obviously what he did was apex of concern for us. But about noon, it all changed. The scripture says that about noon, it, the sky darkened. Darkness came over everything. And it, it was almost, it seems maybe to shield Jesus in that time, at least from the view of those around him as much. Because in that time, the, the, a change began to happen for the next three hours. And it's at the beginning of that time. The very beginning of that, around noon, that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I, 
I don't think we let that sink in at times as we ought to. Again, I talked about mystery and the, and the fact that he's fully God and fully man and, and how he lived out humanity without pulling out the trump card of his back pocket of divinity. That's, that's mystery. We, we don't know exactly how all of that worked. We have to be guided by scripture and stop where we need to stop in that. But this also is mystery. Mystery that, that he who is fully God is forsaken by the Father. God the Father forsakes the Son for a time. Again, it's full of mystery, but, but it, it clearly is what Jesus felt. That somehow, something occurred in which the Father and the relationship that the Father always had to the Son, always had, it never was not changed. From all eternity past, it was there. In fact, it was there all the way till it seems now. Now at noon, for three hours, something changed. Jesus was forsaken by the Father. So the question we ask is why? Why was he forsaken? We read a text this morning on the screen. Hopefully you reflected on this morning. The the scripture clearly tells us that he became a curse for us. He became a curse. He became cursed is everyone who hangeth on a tree. Why was he forsaken? Because of our sin, because of the sin of all those for whom he went to that cross for. We, again, don't really feel the weight of it, I think, the way we should, because sometimes we blow off sin. We blow it off. Even even those of us who blow it the least still have a sense in which we blow it off. We, we don't comprehend, we don't understand fully what sin is and what an affront it is to God. And as that sin was laid on Jesus, as he who had no sin became sin for us, the Father turned away. It is what ultimately will happen to all for whom their sins were not laid on Jesus on the cross, for all who have not embraced what Jesus has done. One day he will turn away from all those outside of Christ. He will turn away from all those who take their sin lightly. He will. But the good news of the gospel is that he turned away from Christ so that he doesn't have to turn away from those who have let Christ be their sin bearer. Christ took, again, mystery. He took an eternity of suffering in that period of time. We can't imagine what it was like, what it was like for him to absorb what should have been all mankind's state and destiny in that period. It lasted for three hours. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. And and then the text begins to turn. Then the message of Psalm 22 begins to change its tone. Up until that time, it was, 
It was tough. Things were said and portrayed in this. You heard them this morning, but it, it says in verse 6, this is what it felt like for Jesus to be forsaken. But I am a worm and not a man. Imagine that, the God-man saying, I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And it's full of those kinds of admonitions. He was forsaken. He was forsaken by the Father in that time. But then, as I say, it turns. If you look at verse 22. The whole tone of that psalm begins to turn in verse 22. Let me, let me read it. Listen to the, the change of tenor. It says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not destined or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May the, your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember And turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What's happening? The turn is taking place. This is at the end of those three hours. Whatever horror was experienced in those three hours is beginning to turn, is beginning to lift off of the crucified one. And what begins to rise up in his heart is what it's going to accomplish. What begins to rise up in the heart of Jesus is all that that horror is going to allow to happen. He he talks about it in stages. He, He talks about his brothers. He's speaking of the Jewish people, of Jewish people who will come and be saved because of this. Then he turns and he talks about Gentiles in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember the Gentiles, the Jews, the Gentiles. And then... He says in verse 31, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. He speaks of you and me, us now, those who were yet unborn, who will come to benefit from the fact that the Son of God was forsaken by the Father for a time, that he became a curse for them and hope would reign in their life. That's the flow of this psalm. And then, as we began with the text in verse 1, we began with a text that is a direct quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me at the beginning of this three-hour period? Now we come to the close of it, at the end of it. 
the end of all of that suffering. Again, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 19 or just to listen clearly. It says this. Let me pick it up in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. We already talked about that text. It's the end of the three-hour period. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Right out of Psalm 69. And then it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Go back with me to Psalm 22, verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn to us. And God willing, generations even after us will hear that message. And why? Because he has done it. That very well could be translated in the Hebrew It is finished. Here it's speaking of God doing it, but it really is saying in the Hebrew, it is finished. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it concludes the end of that three-hour period that it is finished. What's finished? everything that's needed, everything that's needed to reconcile a sinful soul to a holy God. Every barrier to that reconciliation has been cared for, has been dealt with. All that's left is for a people to embrace it. All that's left is for a people to acknowledge it. It's the gospel, folks. It is the gospel from beginning to end. It's the story of the cross from beginning to end. There are no sweeter words in all of Scripture than it is finished. And there are no more horrific words in all of Scripture than, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All in the same psalm. All in the psalm of David about the cross. I hope you hear those words this morning. I hope you hear them, that you know that sin separates. But Jesus has done everything that's needed to care for that sin, to pay for the penalty of that sin in all who will embrace him because he finished the work. He finished it. It's done. Those are sweet, sweet words. That is the gospel, folks. That is the gospel in the Old Testament to us. We're going to close this morning with a song that we sang already. A song that's familiar probably to most everyone here. I doubt that there are very few that have not heard this song. I remember I heard it as a young child. I heard it as I would be in another room or actually wander into a room the night that Billy Graham was speaking on television. And I say to you this morning, when I would wander in or hear it from my bedroom or hear it from adjacent room, I didn't run in to listen to all of it because it scared me to death. It scared me. I knew that there was something that kept 
my distance from that God. I knew my sin. I didn't know the remedy to the sin. I knew the part of being forsaken. I knew the part that my sin caused God not to be able to come to me as he, or as I would want him to, or I could come to him the way I would want to. I knew that. Nobody had to tell me that. I, that was God's, in, in many ways, God's severe mercy to me. It was a horrific time in my life. I hated it. I remember my mother would listen to Christian radio and I, I would leave the house. I didn't want to listen to it because I was fearful. I was fearful and should be. I, I should have been. But by the grace of God, as I became a teenager, God opened my eyes to see something. And I didn't have to be afraid because he has done it. It is finished. He did everything that was needed to bring reconciliation for me. What do I do today when my sins accuse me? What do you do when your sins accuse you? I hope you run to the words of Scripture that say things like, It's finished. I've done everything that's needed to remove those sins as far as the east is from the west from you. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ because Christ took it. Christ took it for us in those hours. I hope you know that reality this morning and that you rejoice in it. And if you don't, that even as we sing this morning, God will open your eyes as he did for me. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I went from unbelief to belief, but I did. And he can do the same for you. Run to the Savior. Let's stand and sing. Just as I am without one thing, but that my heart was shed for me, and that Thou bidst me to be loved.
stranded, I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcome with open arms, praise God, just as I am. Just as I am, I would be lost, but mercy. to be healed I come desperate to be rescued I come empty to be filled I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb and I'm welcome with open arms praise God on the cross to him going through his mind about Psalm 69, Psalm 22, other texts of scripture and checking off what had to be fulfilled. And the gospel declares to us that there is no box unchecked. They're all checked. All that's left is to believe. To believe he finished the work for you. If you try to make up new boxes, it won't work. It's only to believe. Let's pray. Father, as I said, I don't know what happened, but I moved from unbelief to belief. And many here today are rejoicing that the same happened to them. Some may know it more keenly than others when it happened. But that's the key that we believe. And I pray, Father, if there's one here this morning who who for the first time has realized that all the boxes have been checked and all that's left to do is to believe that you would grant 
that they might move from unbelief to belief this morning. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.